John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, today's message, Alive with Real Life. A number of themes in these verses, but I'm using that title for reasons that will become clear later on. So follow along as I read. After this, Jesus, after this was his meeting with Nicodemus, that's being referred to, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him or ahead of him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then most notably in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above, at this point, the narrative changes. And near as I can tell, this is not the John the baptizer speaking. This is John, the author of the gospel. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and given all things into his hands. Now notice this. And here's one reason for the title. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal, abundant, age-enduring life. All of those are descriptive terms of this one Greek word, zoe, for translated life. Whoever does not obey the Son, notice, believes the Son, does not obey the Son, shall not see life, zoe, in the Greek, but the wrath of God remains on him. There ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. So in this scripture passage today, John the baptizer makes another appearance. And in so doing, he is teaching his disciples a lesson by example. And as we look closer at these verses today, we see that John the baptizer is teaching by both example in terms of what he says and the example of what he does. Now, as the passage begins, we find that Jesus and his disciples... They have left the city of Jerusalem from the Passover feast, and they have now journeyed into the countryside of Judea. And in verse 22, we were told that they remained there, and we learned, it says that, it, well, it implies that Jesus was baptizing people, but it was actually his disciples, just like John the baptizer was doing. Um, verse 22, as I said, seems to imply it was Jesus, but if you just turn over very quickly to John chapter 4 and look at verse 2, I'm not going to turn there myself. I've, you know, I have it referenced here. I've looked it up. You can just switch over there if you want for a quick second. John 4, verse 2. It's clear it, it was disciples who were doing the baptizing, not Jesus himself. All right, we also learn that John the baptizer is still carrying on his ministry of calling people to repentance and baptizing them. 
And as we see there in verses 25 to 26, there arose some hard feelings and resentment among some of John the Baptizer's followers. Because some of them were quite jealous over the fact that fewer people were following John and more people were following Jesus. And John the Baptist, for his part, demonstrates what a true man of God he was in the way he responds to his disciples. I mean, look again at verse 27. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What an example of humility and submission to the will of God. Here, this man has been accustomed to being the focus of all the attention. And he has been the one that hundreds and hundreds of seekers and inquirers have reached out to. They've come to him for help and guidance. And now, slowly but surely, they are ignoring him and they're following Jesus. And in his response to these questioning and perhaps embittered disciples, he shows how well he understood the kingdom message of our Lord. A man can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him from above. I think John was telling his followers that if the ministry of Jesus is increasing, it's because Almighty God has ordained that it should. And there in verse 30, John the baptizer spells it out for them in plain language. He must increase. Jesus must increase while he, John, must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. He must become greater. I must diminish. Now, friends, that is a marvelous example of how the Scripture teaches us the lessons of our Lord. All of this discussion about the ministry of Jesus flourishing while John the baptizer's ministry is slowly winding down is designed to teach us two different but equally important lessons. There's a moral lesson, for first of all, I'll call it that. John is setting an example, a great example, to us as members of the household of God. How often do we see, for example, a fellow believer prospering some way, and while we're not doing so well, aren't we filled sometimes with envy and resentment? Isn't that the way it is too often for some of us? And I can tell you, pastors struggle with this too. You see, some will look at the, the work and ministry of another pastor's uh, church, how it's flourishing, the church is growing, and then consider their own ministries, and well, what do you think? Do you think Pastor Smith says, Praise God that brother so-and-so is prospering. He must increase, but I must decrease. No, too few of us in the body of Christ, whether we're pastors, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, or just church members, are filled with that kind of godly humility as that of John the Baptist. And the lesson is, we ought to be. Now, if we see the work of God moving forward under the legitimate, notice I qualified this with the term legitimate work of any ministry, we ought to rejoice because it is ultimately God doing the work, not us or them. But then secondly, there's also a lesson here for us in the history of God's plan of redemption. There's the moral lesson, which touches us personally and individually, but in the broader sweep, there's the whole point of God's plan of redemption and how this reflects that. These words of John the baptizer have a profound and deeply important symbolic meaning. This episode, actually is the fourth of a cycle of events that began back in John chapter 2 that are meant to symbolize the superiority of Jesus over the corrupt religious system 
of the Jews. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw the miracle at the wedding feast in Cana where Jesus turned water into new wine. The water was in ceremonial purification jars, and he turned it into new wine. That is meant to illustrate the way that the life and teachings of Jesus vastly surpass anything that the Jewish religion could produce. And his life and ministry will render obsolete to do away with the stone jars. Are no, they're no longer needed in any kind of purification rituals. But then in the second cycle, in verses 12 to 25, Jesus symbolically reenacts the destruction or the removal of the temple at Jerusalem. And although it had been the focal point of God's presence and saving activity in the world, all of that was about to change. Jesus' actions of cleansing the temple and talking of its destruction, they are meant to anticipate both that event, its destruction, but also his ultimate sacrifice that will reveal to the world the superior priesthood of the Son of God, the ultimate sacrificial act. The temple is no longer needed because there is now the one true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then in the third cycle, verses 1 through 21 of chapter 3, Jesus fulfills the old covenant prophecies about regeneration from God by water and the Spirit. And in his death and resurrection, he proves to be that ultimate expression of the serpent lifted high for healing and deliverance in the desert by Moses. We read about that. We heard about that in our Old Testament reading earlier from the book of Numbers. And now here today, we come to this fourth cycle. And we see how Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, far surpasses John the baptizer and any baptism of purification ceremony that he represents from the older covenant. So we see in both words and actions, John the baptizer sets a moral lesson for us in humility and rejoicing when a fellow believer prospers in the Lord's work but also a profound illustration of how God Almighty was moving all Old Covenant history toward that one focal point, the coming of Jesus, and the blessing of the New Covenant and the kingdom age of God. And then finally, in verse 36, John the Baptist says, or John the Apostle, I should say, says, He who believes in the Son has zoen ionion in the Greek, life Everlasting, or life that endures through the age. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Another translation, those who believe in the Son have eternal life, and those who do not obey the Son never will have life. God's anger stays upon them. Now, I'm, Lord willing, going to get more deeply into this issue of what this term life means here. And the, the different terms in the Greek language that are used for our one word life. We, we talked about this before as it relates to the word world and how we make that English word, uh, we press it into service for th two or three different Greek terms that are translated by that one word. But in the Greek, they don't always mean the same thing. We have the same thing here with this term life. We see the word L-I-F-E in our Bibles, but we don't know unless we take a moment to study it either the Greek or Hebrew word behind that word, and they're not always the same. Just to give you a small taste of it, in Genesis 2, verse 7, we read that God 
created human beings, and he breathed into the man the breath of Zoe, life. Now, verse 36 again, those who believe in the Son have eternal life, but those who do not obey the Son will never have life. That's about as simple and direct as you can get. You won't find a more precise bottom line presentation of the kingdom message. But what does it mean to believe in Jesus, the Son of God? I mean, does it mean that you just simply believe that a person named Jesus really existed? Somewhere over there in Palestine? Does it mean that you just believe that Jesus was a great man? Is that really all that's necessary to have this age-enduring eternal life? Well, when you examine all that the Bible means when it tells us you have to believe in Jesus, it means all of what I just said, but a whole lot more. Because it's not enough simply to believe in or that there was a Jesus. There are plenty of people walking around right here in Greenville County. If you ask them, do you believe Jesus really existed? Yes, I do. Do you believe he was a great man? Yes, I do. And and press it further. Do you believe he was the Son of God? Well, I believe he was a Son of God. Do you believe he was divine? Sure, I believe he was divine. But then you press them a little further. Uh, I, I believe that the Buddha was a divine figure, that Krishna was divine. I believe God's divinity resides in all of us. We're all divine. You know, you get those kind of new agey responses. No, it is in him and him alone that we must put our trust and faith for our deliverance from our sins. In other words, we must undergo a new birth. We must receive Zoe Ionion, new abundant eternal life. And in so doing, we are thereby enabled to believe in the Son and live according to his commandments. And the ability to believe, the will to believe, and the will and the ability to endure and persevere in belief is a gift from God of his spirit. How do you receive that gift? Well, it's very simple. You ask for it with a sincere heart. And then what is this, as I've translated it or spoken of it, this age-enduring life, this eternal life? Well, that's something else I plan to get into in a little more detail in this evening's study. But then, think about this. When we come to believe in the Son, are we simply, and this relates to the question, are we simply buying fire insurance, so to speak, so that when we die, we'll go to heaven and not hell? Is that what eternal life is? Is the result of our having been born from above by the Spirit of God only going to be something that becomes of value to us after we die? Well, no. Not according to Scripture. The life we receive by believing in Jesus is age-enduring life, zoe ionion. It's a life that in the days of John the baptizer was to begin in the age that was to come from their perspective. But with the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus to to the Father's right hand, that age did come and it continues on forward until the end of all things. Until the return of Christ. Look with me. Just look, look over to John chapter 5 at verse 21. I'm gonna ha- I am going to ask you to look at this one. Hold your place there in John 3. Look over at 521. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them, yep, there's the word again, zoe, life, so also the Son gives zoe, life, to whom he will. Why am I making a big deal about this? Because this is not a Greek word that would be translated biological life. 
It's a specific word. Jesus the Son gives life. That's present tense. It's not future tense. When we are reborn in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our everlasting life, our life in the kingdom of God begins now. It begins this side of the grave. But now there's another side to it. And we've had other occasions to speak of this from the scriptures. The blessings of God to his people are always accompanied by the cursing and wrath of God on his and their enemies. This is one of the great themes of the Older Testament, that Jehovah God Most High is a warrior on behalf of his people. And his covenant blessings, his chesed, come to them as he rules over them and contends with and destroys their enemies. And in doing that, we see he blesses them with life and peace. And in the New Covenant, we find the same themes, friends. And that should be no surprise because we're talking about the same covenant and the same God. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God stays on him, abides with him. And in those words, John the baptizer echoes what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does it mean to not believe the Son? Well, does it mean you just don't go to church very much, so therefore you really don't believe in him? Does it mean you deny that a human being by the name of Jesus of Nazareth ever lived? See, implied in the idea of believing or not believing in Jesus is the idea of obedience. So we can think of it this way, he who disobeys the Son shall not see life. And that's why some tra- there's a few translations, or in, the, in the, the, the passage we read earlier, he who has life, he who believes in him has life, but he who disobeys him, he who does not obey him, shall not have life. And obviously, though, and again, this is an important factor in terms of what we understand this to mean as far as this life business. It's obvious if one does not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're not going to obey his commandments. And in so doing, such a person will not see this life. Now, that means something different, perhaps, to what it sounds like, and that's why it helps to know these different terms behind the one English word, life. Because we know people who don't believe in Christ Jesus at all in any way, shape, or form, and they are very much alive. People don't just drop dead on the street and die on the spot if they hear the kingdom message and reject it outright. Yes, even though they are, quote, alive, they do not have zoe, the real kind of life, the God-inspired, given life. Or to be more precise with the words of the Bible They do not see and will not see life. In other words, they have no part in the kingdom of God as it unfolds and spreads and as it will be fully revealed and consummated in the world to come. And you see, that statement has a dual application. It implies directly and immediately to the Jews of that day who will be and were responsible for the ultimate act of breaking covenant when they crucify the Lord of glory and proclaim, we have no king We have no head, we have no God, but Caesar. The wrath and vengeance of God will literally come upon them in the destruction of their city and the temple in A.D. 70. 
But you see, it also applies to anyone of any age who rejects and disobeys and disbelieves the Son of God in that God's wrath is looming over them, both in this life and in the life to come. John the baptizer, being the great prophet that he was, points us to Jesus as the one who bestows Zoane Ionia. I'm going to say it again. Life everlasting, age-enduring life, life in the kingdom on all who trust in his name. And we who hear his words today, we dare not, we dare not avoid dealing with the questions that immediately confront us. Do we have age-enduring life? Do we have this everlasting life? Do we believe in the Son? Do we obey Him? Is it the wrath or the love of God with which we will have to do when we step from this life into the life to come? May God give us the grace and the spirit and the ability to have that kind of life. Let us pray.